Turn in your Bibles with me, please, to Esther chapter 1. I mentioned last week, if you turn to Psalms, which is about midway in the whole Bible, turn back two uh, books from Job, and then you get to Esther. Esther chapter 1 we'll be reading today. If you don't have your own Bible, you should have one. What are you reading through the week? You should have one that you should read, and it should be a regular habit. The Word of God says the Word of God is our food, our strength. It nourishes us and sustains us. You wonder how it does that. As we read through Esther, you'll find out that it, it infuses us, it gives to us a proper attitude about who we are, a proper understanding of who God is, and what he would have us to do. So let's stand together as we read Esther chapter 1. I'll read aloud, ask you to follow along with me as I read. And I may stumble over several names there, don't let that bother you. You'll get the gist of what's being said. Esther chapter 1. Now in the days of Ahasuerus, the, the Ahasuerus who reigned from India to Ethiopia over 127 provinces, in those days when King Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne in Susa the citadel, in the third year of his reign, he gave a feast for all his officials and servants. The army of Persia and Media and the nobles and governors in the provinces were before him. While he showed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor and pomp of his greatness for many days, 180 days. And when they, these days were completed, the king gave for all the people present in Susa, the citadel, both great and small, a feast lasting for seven days in the court of the garden of the king's palace. There were white cotton curtains and violet hangings fastened with cords of fine linen and purple to silver rods and marble pillars and also couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of porphyry, marble, mother of pearl, and precious stones. Drinks were served in golden vessels, vessels of different kinds, and the royal wine was lavished according to the bounty of the king. And drinking was according to this edict. There is no compulsion, for the king had given orders to all the staff of his palace to do as each man desired. Queen Vashti also gave a feast for the women in the palace that belonged to, the, to King Ahasuerus. On the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he commanded Mahumain, Biztha, Harbona, Bigtha, Abagtha, Zethar, Cardus, Carcus, the seven eunuchs who served in the presence of King Ahasuerus to bring Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown in order to show the peoples and the princes her beauty, for she was lovely to look at. But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command delivered by the eunuchs. At this the king became enraged, and his anger burned within him. Then the king said to the wise men who knew the times, for this was the king's procedure toward all who were versed in law and judgment, the men next to him being Karshina, Shethar, Atmatha, Tarshish, Mariz, Marcina, and Memukin, the seven princes of Persia and Media, who saw the king's face and sat first in the kingdom, According to the law, what is to be done to Queen Vashti? Because she has not performed the command of King Ahasuerus delivered by the eunuchs. Then Memucan said in the presence of the king and the officials, not only against the king has Queen Vashti done wrong, but also against all the officials and all the peoples who are in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus. For the queen's behavior will be made known to all women, causing them to look at their husbands with contempt. Since they will say King Ahasuerus commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him, and she did not come. This very day, the noble women of Persian media who have heard of the king, queen's behavior will say the same to all the king's officials, and there will be contempt and wrath in plenty. 
If it please the king, let a royal order go out from him and let it be written among the laws of the Persians and the Medes so that it may not be repealed. That Vashti is never again to come before King Ahasuerus and let the king give her royal position to another who is better than she. So when the decree made by the king is proclaimed throughout all this kingdom, for it is vast, all women will give, honor, will give honor to their husbands, high and low alike. This advice pleased the king and the princes, and the king did as Memuken proposed. He sent letters to all the royal provinces, to every province in, his, in its own script, and to every people in its own language, that every man be master in his own household and speak according to the language of his people. And God give us understanding this portion of God's word that we study as we begin our text part of our series in Esther. Let's take some time now to pray and ask you to bow your heads with me in a moment of prayer. We thank you, Father, for allowing us to be here today and all who are gathered here we thank you for each one here we would pray lord that you would help us uh, to be faithful in serving you faithful in attendance faithful in attendance to sunday school faithful in attendance to our worship services on sunday morning and sunday evening faithful in our wednesday prayer time that we would bring our prayer requests and praise uh, to you as, as we come forward as a church praying for each other and praying for this city. Faithful in service in the areas of ministry that you've given us opportunities and responsibilities to serve in. Help us in that faithfulness. Now, Lord, we pray for those, some who um, are not feeling well. We especially pray for Beverly, who was here earlier but had to go home. Don't know exactly what the issue, understand her blood pressure was, was uh, um, turning and changing. So we uh, just pray for your your hand in her health and healing. Uh, we just pray that you would just watch over and bless and uh, be with her. We thank you for Marge here today again and your recovery that you're doing in, in her, her body. We pray that that will continue, that you bless and keep her and allow her to, to continue growth and, and health. We pray for others, Lord, who are part of this group of believers who just have challenges with their health. Some who are here still not feeling 100%. Others who are not able to be here because of health. We just pray your strength and your blessing on their lives and that their testimony through this time might reflect um, their trust in you and dependence upon you even during this time of, of challenge with their health. So Lord, we pray now for your word that as it goes out, you would bless it give us understanding, challenge our hearts, help, it, help us to apply rightly to our lives in the context that we live in so that we might trust in you, that we might see you working, and we might be faithful in the task you've given us to do, knowing, Lord, that your kingdom is being established and your rule is established and that you care for and protect and uh, um, um, watch over your people for your purpose. We thank you now. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. Choir comes with our special song. Last week we started our series in Esther with an introduction. We talked about the major theme of Esther, and that major theme is that God is working behind the scenes for the good of his people, that God is working out his plan and his purpose. And we saw that in Esther, um, the name of the Lord is never mentioned in the whole entire book, but what we see is God working, and that it should teach us in a practical way to look for, um, in our own lives, God's work, God's doing, God's activity. That should encourage us. And what it should encourage us is God is bringing about his purpose. And Esther, why does God work? What is God doing behind the scenes? He is, he is uh, uh, protecting his people. His people as a whole, they, they are threatened. There is an enemy who wants to annihilate 
all of God's people, all of the Jews, and God is protecting them. Why is he doing that? So that he can provide the deliverer that he has promised all the way from Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. He says, I'm going to bring in this deliverer for the sin of my people. And God is doing this in Esther so that he might provide to us a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. We need to see that in the theme, not just that God is doing some neat things and how neat it is to have it happen in his life, in, in, in the lives of his people, but God is working his purpose and that purpose points specifically to the Lord Jesus Christ. So although the name of the Lord is not mentioned, Jesus' name is not mentioned in all of Esther, that's what's behind all that's being done. And so should it be in our lives. We talked about last week about listening to the narrator. What is God saying about the things that are happening in our lives and how we ought to persevere and see recognize God doing something. We may not know all that he's doing or what he has in mind, but we know that he is doing something. And so um, Esther should help us in that. Today we look at chapter 1 specifically, and let's take a look at that. I've, I've entitled this, When Man and Beauty is Prioritized. When Man and Beauty is prioritized. That's what I entitled this message today in Esther chapter 1. We've read through it, and the first thing we notice is there's an introduction to one of the main characters in Esther, and that happens to be King Ahasuerus. And in fact, chapter 1 seems to be all about King Ahasuerus in a somewhat disturbing way. When I ask myself what's happening in this chapter and say what's happening before us, what we see is the king throwing a big party. He has a huge feast. Feast is just that. It's a party. It's a celebration. And it lasts half a year. <laughs> 180 days. Okay? 180 days of feasting. And this is in the third year of his reign. Now, that number will come into play as we go throughout the, uh, the story. But here we go in the third year of his reign. So you've got to say, third year? What has he really done? in three years that he's celebrating. But he's celebrating something, and he's throwing a big feast. And what is this? He's showing everybody how great and how vast his kingdom is. Now, you and I kind of know the foolishness of that, but the problem with that is this man-centered mentality. Life revolves around this king. Everything is about him, his kingdom, and what he has done, what he has accomplished, or what he plans to do in the future. Now, you know that there's a lesson that comes from that. As you look at this, everything is about a Ahasuerus. First, he has a 180-day feast or celebration for all of his officials. So that's all the government. And then he's in the capital of, of Susa, and in that city... After the 180 days, he takes a week or seven days for everybody in the city to celebrate, all right? So you can imagine in this 180 days or half a year, he's probably brought people all over from his kingdom. It tells us his kingdom goes all the way from India to Ethiopia. Look on a, on a map or look on a globe and you see that's a vast area. India by itself is huge and Ethiopia is, is one of the major uh, countries in Africa. So you got India and Africa um, that he's ruling over. It's a big kingdom. And so he's had this celebration with all his officials. He probably brought them in from all over. And now he, he wants the city to celebrate as well. He has seven days of feasting. 
for the city. My point here is this, and I think the point that the Bible wants us to get from this is that everything now is centered around him. Remember the theme that we're walking through in Esther, that all throughout Esther, God's name doesn't appear, but he seems to be working behind the scenes. Something's wrong with that picture when man and his doing is prominent and God and his work is behind the scenes. Something's wrong with that focus. And the caution to us is, do not let that be the way we choose to live. Where God is kind of happening and it's hard to see, but all, everything that we're doing is prominent and upfront and most important. Think about your life. And what goes on? Is it about you? Or is it recognizing and putting God first and foremost? The Bible tells us in Matthew 6, 33, seek first Ahasuerus' kingdom, right? No. Seek first my kingdom, kingdom me, No. Seek first the kingdom of God and all the necessities of life got to take care of. Don't put yourself first. Don't put man first. Now, I say that, but we live in a man-centered, man-focused world. Most of all that goes on is focused. It has a view of all, we get, let me say it this way, everything is busy, 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 but God is forgotten and behind the scene. So Sunday, when it's time to, to show what the focus of our life is be, should be, we're too tired. Because we don't work the overtime. And when we have some time, you know, we had to go to graduation, we had to go to wedding, we had to, we had to go to celebration at work, we had to do some stuff. I, mean, I finally had my me time, so I had to get my projects done at home. I had to do this, I had to do that. And then I just need time to take care of stuff, you know. Stuff goes wrong with the car, stuff goes wrong with the house, uh, whatever, running the kids around here and there. But if you live your life like that, it becomes all around you or them, but it's still man, it's man-centered. People think that they commit their lives in service to others and they're still centered around man instead of centered around God. Here's how you can tell whether, life, whether or not your life is centered around God. Do you see God in everything that you do? Is he a part of it? Is he an important part? Do you pray about the things that you do? In other words, is it what you are involved in, is it important enough to recognize I need God's power, strength, and ability to do this? Or are you going about your day as if I just need a little bit more rest, I need a little more vitamins, I need a little bit more of this, a little bit more of that, and I can carry on. And so what we see in the first part of this chapter is a very man-focused or man-centered mentality. Now, I ask us to, to look out at this book as we continue to, to, to read it. Matter of fact, I need to ask that question. How many get a chance to read through it? Raise your hand. Proud. Raise it. Good. Praise God. If you haven't, how many are going to promise again to do that? All right. Go ahead. You can commit to doing that. You're going to read through it. I want you to do that. Those who read through it, how long did it take? 25, half hour, 40 minutes, 45 minutes in some cases, yeah. Yeah, I find myself, um, I can't read it fast because I get bogged down in the details, you know. I'm like, oh, man, what did that say? Go back and circle that and go back and do this and do that. And so I have to force myself, just, just read it. Just read it fast. Now, when you're studying, that's different, but I have to focus myself to, to, to read it fast. And I, I want you to do that first of all. Just read it fast. Just read it through. Don't try to take any notes. Don't try to put every thought together. Just read it. Read it straight through like a story. Right. In fact, you know, we have all of these helps, right? You got the Bi I have a Bible on the app, and I can set it to, to read to me. I haven't done that yet, but I don't have the patience for 
<laughs> but I'm encouraging you. You might, you might have more patience than me. And uh, just set it and read it while you're taking a walk or while, you, while you're jogging or while you're exercising. And, you know, yeah, I'm reminding us of something else we should do that we're not doing. I know. Um, but while you're doing that, uh, gardening or whatever you're doing, uh, even shopping in the store uh, or driving to work, um, don't text while you drive, but uh, you, 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 can, you can casually listen to something instead of the radio and uh, maybe probably in about 40 minutes or so, you can, you can listen through or read through um, Esther. That's a good way to, to just to get the, to let it just kind of saturate your mind. Thank you. Just trying to, trying to come in there and, 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 and give you a, a, a main focus. And that's what you get. So here we go. Um, I ask, ask yourself, as we do in this chapter, what's happening in this chapter? And ask it this way, what are the people, the main characters doing? That's a simple way. Uh, and so in this chapter, the main character is King Ahasuerus, and then we also have Queen Vashti, and, and we have the king's uh, council, his, his, his court, uh, his advisory. And so we have those characters, and we see what they're doing. And the main chapter is focusing on them and what they're doing. But I ask you to ask a, a, a more deliberate question. Ask what is happening behind the scenes, and what is God doing in this chapter? I want you to think through that. What are the, the people doing? Yes, that's kind of obvious as it's spelled out. But I want you to think about what is God doing in this chapter? And we want to answer that question uh, as we go through. All right. Um, what, is, what is the main character doing? In chapter 1, very start, the king is entertaining, he's celebrating, and he's inviting, and he includes whom he pleases. He celebrates as long and as lavishly as he pleases. 180 days, and then in the seven-day feast, we're given some of the details of how beautiful the decorations are. You know, you go to a wedding, and, and, and we ask, well, what were the colors, and how was it decorated, and, you know, what, 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 how did it look, and how did they do this and do that, and what was the reception like, and how was the table set up for the reception, and how beautiful was it? Do you get any pictures? And so we ask that, but at the king's celebration, you kind of get a sense that, hey, this, this was top-notch. This was a big deal, and it was, a, it was a big spread. It was a big celebration. It was for all the city there in the capital, and they had a good time. And so you get this idea that the king did it as he pleased, and he did it just the way that he, he wanted. Um, and so, again, we see in a book that's centered on man and God is working kind of in a periphery that, that that describes too many people as they live their lives. We're living our lives as on the main stage with God in the background. And that needs to change. Our thinking about the priority and God's work in our life needs to change. might be a good time to make a practical um, application for us. We've made some announcements about our, um, our uh, cleaning list at the church, and we noticed that it kind of dwindled down to two families for a time. And uh, so I've had some, heard some suggestions, some good suggestions of saying, we should stop making that volunteer. And we should appoint families, whether they volunteer or not, for our cleaning list. And so I'm not going to do something right now with that, but I just want you to think about that. God's work is, 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 is not an option here. It's not something, you know, you kind of get time to do it, then you do it. If you don't, well, big deal. We think too often about God's work and God's ministry that way. As we're on the main stage, and God and his work is just kind of, you know, behind the scenes. If it happens, it happens, and, you know, who notices it? Last Wednesday, we had a prayer time where we acknowledged those who work behind the scenes. Those who do things that um, sometimes don't even get noticed, 
but are a pretty big deal because um, if they stop doing it, you get noticed. It's kind of like, you know, uh, the trash collector at home. I know he comes on Thursday, and I don't make a big deal of him, but let him miss a Thursday. <laughs> let him miss a couple of Thursdays. <laughs> it won't take long to notice that, hey, the stuff ain't working right here. It's getting kind of backed up here. We need somebody to do their job. And so it is in, in God's work. I hope you take note of that and take that to heart. Um, because God's work needs people working behind the scene. Not God just working, not, not our attitude that God's work is behind the scene, but that we're willing to do the behind the scene thing so that God's work can carry on. All right, so we introduced to King Ahasuerus, and now we're introduced to Vashti, Queen Vashti. She comes up in verse 12. Before that, the reason she comes up is verse 10 and 11, the king's request. Actually, she comes up in verse 9. Uh, Queen Vashti also gave a feast for the women in the palace that belonged to King Ahasuerus. So um, it kind of just fits in with what all the king is doing. She's doing her own little thing, too. All right? We're going to talk a little bit more about that as we go on. Uh, but then we see the king's request in verse 10 and 11. On the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine. Now, it says that, right? They've been drinking for seven days, <laughs> right? He's in a pretty good mood. You know, just tell me like it is. He's in a pretty good mood. After drinking for several days, what do you think he has in mind? His own plan, his own purpose, his own pleasure, right? And so he says, you know, it's a good time. We're in a good mood. Let's celebrate. Bring Queen out. So he commanded his, his seven eunuchs, um, Verse 11, to bring Queen Vashti before the queen with her royal crown in order to show the peoples and the princes her beauty, for she was lovely to look at. I want to talk about beauty. There's an emphasis on beauty here in this section, and we very much relate to it today. There's an emphasis on beauty, and so if you think I'm going to preach against beauty, I'm not. God made beautiful things, and so he loves, he looked at what he created, and he said, it's beautiful. The word in the Bible, it is good. He said, it's just what I designed. It's just what I made. When we get time to take vacation, we love to go to scenic places and look at natural beauty. So we all enjoy beauty. God made us that way. God put us in a beautiful environment. He enjoys beauty. Problem here, though, is there's an emphasis on beauty that does the same thing that we saw in the first part of the chapter, is it becomes man-centered, and it becomes the priority instead of pre-appreciating the creator who made the beautiful thing, we want to worship the beautiful thing and forget the creator behind it. And what we want to do is make beauty something that serves and delights and brings pleasure to us instead of beauty being something that acknowledges its creator. If you are what people, common people call beautiful, guess what? You didn't make yourself that way. That makeup you have on and that hair you bought <laughs> didn't make you beautiful. You were beautiful because God made you naturally that way, and you had very little to do with that. The Bible says Vashti was beautiful to look at. She had some natural beauty that people admired, and guess what? There's nothing wrong with that. God made her that way. In fact, the whole book of Esther is really a focus on beauty but a wrong focus, an improper focus. It's a focus that, that, that wants to praise man for beauty or either please mankind for beauty. And God made it that he might be praised and that he might be pleased. So God made you just the way you are for his pleasure and for his purpose. And stop looking in the mirror and saying, I wish I was something else. In other words, God made a mistake when he made me. He didn't make me the way he should have made me. 
Yes, he did. He made you just the way he wanted you to be. Because once he doesn't want you focusing on beauty above the creator himself. He wants you to focus on him. When you see something beautiful, you ought to be reminded of the one who made it. I like doing projects and making things with my hands. I'm working on a project at home. And I'm trying to be careful that I do it so that the end result looks good. Not only does it look good, but it performs the way it, it should. It's strong, it's solid, it's enduring, but it looks like it's strong and solid, and it looks good. I want it to be that. So when people see it, they go, wow, you made that? God made us that way. So people say, wow, God made that? God is an awesome God. God desires beautiful things. Heaven's going to be filled with beautiful things and beautiful people are going to enjoy God in a beautiful environment. You get an idea of beauty, just look at Genesis 1, go all the way through Revelation and you see that the, the garden that, that's also described at the end of Revelation is one of beauty. And so you can't you can't deny that things were made for beauty and for us to enjoy the beauty of it, but with the right perspective. And so something's wrong. Here the king is he drunk and he's in a good mood, and now he wants Vashti to come out and display, not just display her beauty, but display it for him. And I wonder why. You don't have to wonder too much why Vashti had a problem with that. So that's what the next part of it is. We come to this part when Vashti, re, uh, she, she, she just refuses the king's request. It's like we have this nice story going along. The king is feasted for 100 and day, 180 days. He has a feast for the city of Susa for seven days. It's beautiful. Everything is going well. You can kind of hear the story. The narrator is talking in the background. It's beautiful music. is just flowing. There's violins. There's this beautiful sound. And then all of a sudden, there's a break in the action. It's like, you know, the sound of a record being scratched. Like, hold everything. Because Vashti was told to come before the king and all of his court, and she said no. She said, I ain't about to do that. I ain't going there. And you can't make me. Now, there's something that happens here that God wants us to pay attention to. Cultures change, environments change, the way people view things, they're trying to shift that now, but something doesn't change. Human nature, sin nature does not change. Vashti said, look, I ain't doing what you said. I'm my own person. I do as I please, and I ain't, finna do, I ain't coming in front of you just because you want me to. Now, all that's not said there and there, but she refuses, and nowhere in the rest of the book do you see her going back on that or even apologizing for it. Oh, great king, I'm sorry that I've displeasured you, and I will do it. Nope. What she said, she said. What she ain't going to do, she ain't going to do. Human nature has not changed. We get this idea that, that uh, you know, we, we kind of need to shape and change culture. We recognize today, and what you see through the rest of the chapter is this conflict. I call it the male-female conflict. Did you pick it up when we were reading it? The king and his whole court is bothered because they can't make Vashti do what they want her to do. He's the king of 127 provinces from India to Ethiopia. He can't make one woman do what he wants. <laughs> Women have a lot more power than they want to recognize sometimes. She has a lot of power. The king that has the power of life and death can't make the queen do a thing. That's why I say human nature ain't changed. <laughs> men are trying to force their way and get what they want done and women are still saying you don't care what you say who you are what position you in I do what I want to do human nature hasn't changed it's sin on both sides one is how dare you defy the mighty king and so he meets with all of his officials saying 
you know, it's kind of funny because he's saying, dudes, what are we going to do, man? You see what she did? He's the mighty king, and he's trying to figure out what to do next. Vashti has pulled one on him. <laughs> Human nature, sin nature has not changed. People marvel. We have today, I mentioned this female, this male-female conflict. It's nothing new. It goes all the way back to Genesis. It goes back to the Garden of Eden. It goes back to Genesis chapter 3 when we start to recognize where this conflict has begun. The Bible is the only book, God's way is the only way that has a real remedy that recognizes this conflict and has a solution that brings both dignity and respect in the male-female relationship. Look throughout all of our cultures as we've struggled with that, and we struggle with that today. To this very day, just this weekend, we had this Pride Fest thing going over, going on all across this city and all across the state. How ridiculous. We are struggling with the idea, the sinfulness of homosexuality and those in that lifestyle and those who promote that lifestyle want to tell us they don't know what's male and what's female and they don't know what the rules are for what should, who should do what and how to define whatever. God has made it very, very simple. But the Bible makes it plain and deals with this. Within uh, the, the most the closest, most intimate relationship in mankind is husband to wife. And we recognize what a struggle that is. Adam and Eve recognized that struggle in Genesis chapter 3. God says, because of sin, you're going to have issues. <laughs> husband and wife, male to female relationships are going to be difficult and strained. There's going to be a power struggle within the home because of sin. The Bible recognizes this and gives the only remedy that provides both respect and dignity for both individuals. We've seen cultures where the woman is put down and, 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 and we've had cultures where we've responded to that and I think we've over-responded to it uh, in our culture today. And now we see a, a, a culture where, where the woman rules and dictates and, and we see chaos and mess Everywhere we go, and it is the Bible, it is the Word of God, it is God's way that sets that clear and helps us to understand how God intends for it to function even in a sin-cursed world. God does that. You can't go anywhere else and get a right understanding of what it means to be a male, what it means to be a female, what the role of the man is, what the role of the woman is, how men and women as husband and wife ought to get along and what makes that work and what's, what's the secret to that happening. You get that nowhere else but the word of God. How crucial is that in our society? It's very crucial because there is not a child born outside of a male-female relationship. Now, I understand we're trying to do it without being physical and fertilization and all this kind of stuff. It still requires male and female, and it will require both of those for all of eternity. It's a crucial uh, relationship in all of mankind because we, don't, we aren't born apart from that. We don't recreate apart from that. And not only that, it's, it's in our social network. It's a crucial thing. Just this week outside of my home, I, I heard a woman lamenting and crying and, and shouting, help, help, help me, help me, my boyfriend is beating me. And I, I, I run out of understanding that somebody else there, he's helping her already. You know, I don't look forward to coming in those kind of situations. You want to help somebody, but you, you know, this, this just ain't going to go good. 
this ain't going to be good. And so the, the police have come, and they're, they're trying to help, and, and she's still crying. You, you know what we fear. Help, help, my boyfriend's beating me. Yeah, the minute you get a chance, you're going right back to him. And I can't help you. You can't help a fool from being foolish. Now, I pity, and I, 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 I don't, I don't want to see anybody taken advantage of and hurting, especially in that way. But you under, I understand, you understand that, that this is an extreme, sensitive, and, and it's an area where it's just all messed up. It's all messed up. And what I'm saying to you is that it's the Word of God that puts us in the right balance and have us look in our relationships and relate in right ways that bring both dignity and respect to both parties. So King has a problem. Queen ain't doing what he wanted to. And so he turns to his royal court and he asks the question, what are we going to do, guys? Fellas, what are we going to do? And here's what they tried to do. They tried to legislate respect. That's what they tried to do. Hey, King, man, let me tell you, man, you can't let this go, man, dude, because look, Vashti, what she did, eh? all the women are going to start doing that. They, they're going to disrespect all of us because you can't get your woman right. All of us are going to be disrespected. So they're going to make it happen. By legislation, you can't do that. That's why I say the Bible has the only way. Since God made us and he purposed that Adam and Eve should be together as one, man and woman, husband and wife, he put them together. He knew they'd have issues. He, he forecasted that in Genesis chapter 3. We'll take a look at that. But he tells us how that works together. The word of God is the only thing that does it. Let me tell you why. Let me just get to the cut to the chase. How is it and why is it that the Word of God helps us understand what this very crucial relationship should be like, husband to wife? It's the first human conflict. Sometimes we think the first human conflict <coughs> was Cain and Abel. It was not. It was Adam and Eve. It was Adam and Eve had a conflict. Because of their sin, they brought uh, trouble into a relationship. So now it's a good time for us to turn. Look at Genesis chapter 3. You with me? Verse 16, to, to the woman he said, who is he? Is God speaking here. I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. <coughs> in pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. <coughs> Bible is forecasting this this conflict, this male-female conflict that we see to, our very, to, to, to this very day. <clears throat> you listen to the music of the day, or kind of any day, you see a, just a, a huge disrespect for the genders, one to another. I guess in the 80s and the 90s, it was this rap that, that just called women out of their name and, and uh, uh, still continues to do that, but it's, it, it's, it's turning and it's going kind of both ways. It, it's, it, it's like uh, you just see this tension in society. You see men who don't know how to respect women. You see women who, who have no respect or right thought of men in their lives. Um, and, you know, we can say for good reason because of what they've experienced, but the, the fact is that, that that's just, it's crazy. It's, and it's defining the way things are. So God says to, to Eve, he says, you're going to have a conflict. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. So there's this fight. Now, you might ask, well, what's right? Who, who, who should be doing what? Well, the Bible tells us exactly who should be doing what, what and how it ought to function. But he says you're going to have this huge conflict. And then in verse 17, he says this to Adam. He said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you, sh you should not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain, you should eat of it all days of your life. And he goes on to talk about what happened. What did he say the problem was? Not just because you listened to your wife, but because you listened and obeyed her instead of obeying me. That's what God's saying. You took her word, more important than my word, and now you have a conflict. You'll have that the rest of your life. This male-female uh, conflict, and uh, it continues on. It's the word of God that, 
is the only advice that that makes helps that thing work. Let me get to, to the gist of this that I was saying just a minute ago. How important is it? It's so important that God described his relationship with his people in a marriage terms. We just finished the book of Hosea, and we found out that God is saying, you are my people, I am your husband, but you are unfaithful to me. God remedies this male-female conflict through the Lord Jesus Christ and through him alone. Jesus is pictured in Hosea. Jesus is pictured as the groom, the faithful groom who has unfaltering love for his bride and takes in an unfaithful bride. That bride, Gomer, yes, is a picture of Israel. Israel is a picture of us. We do not deserve the good husband that we have, Jesus. We do not deserve the faithfulness that he brings. There's no way in the world we match his faithfulness. I hear songs that speak of Jesus and almost like they're talking about a man and a woman like, you be faithful to me, I'll be faithful to you, I'm going to be as faithful. There's no way in the world we can sing that way towards Jesus. We simply have to lay ourselves down and say, God, I am not faithful, have not been faithful, and I'm capable of matching your faithfulness, and that's why I worship and praise you. Help me to be what you want me to be. Jesus is the faithful groom to the unfaithful bride, his people, us. And so God chose this to speak of this relationship in Ephesians chapter 5. He says, husbands, love your wives. How? Like Christ loved the church. He gave himself for it. He put his life down. He died for it, that he might nourish them, that he might cherish them, that he might make them holy, sanctify them, and bring them to himself to be a bride fit for him. So God speaks of this, the most awesome spiritual relationship in in, in human terms of husband to wife. It's the word of God that gives us hope. It's the word of God that gives us direction for this most messed up relationship in the human circles. I've mentioned how it's messed up. So if, if, you, if you don't get that, you're just not opening your eyes to look around you. God puts it straight. And he gives us the pattern. And most of all, he gives us the grace that we as husbands might lead, that we as wives might love and obey and submit, that that can work the way God intended to with dignity and respect. It's a challenge. It's a huge challenge. I think it's one of the biggest challenges that we have in mankind. It's one of the things that Satan is most at us about because he knows the impact it will have on our families and future generations and even our spiritual walk. He knows that. But the remedy, nobody else has it outside of the word of God. The remedy is to live as God sets out. Not one over the other, not one lording over the other, but both submitted to God and obedient to God's way and doing as God has, has set them. In other words, taking on the role that God said. It's not the same role. The world has it so messed up. The world wants to say men and women are exactly the same. How foolish is that? We are different in so many ways. We are esteemed the same in God's sight. Not one is above the other. But we are separate and distinct and unique. And God intends for us to interact in ways that go along with his purpose. A husband should act like a husband. A man should act like a man. A woman should act like a woman. Back in Genesis chapter 1, 
when it says God created, he created them male and female. Genesis 1.27, he created them male and female. Not at birth for them to choose what they wanted to be. But he created them male and female. In other words, some male and some female, not both are wishy-washy. He created them as he pleased. And so we see this great conflict that stirred up. We're back to our, our study in Esther, this great conflict. So you got the king with all his power, and he can't overcome this conflict. Notice it's, it, Esther makes you laugh when you look at the end of chapter 1. Take, take a look at there with me. At the end of chapter 1, I've read this several times aloud, and you can kind of hear it in my voice when I read it. Verse 22, he sent letters to all the royal provinces, to every province in its own script and every people in its own language. Let me pause there. He was so powerful, he said he ruled from India to Ethiopia. They didn't all speak the same language. So he had to interpret his law and his edict to all these different people in all the different lands in every culture. And this is what he says, that every man be master in his own household. That's a joke. Every the king got to tell you you master in your own household by his eating. You can can imagine the men reading and say, "Hey, honey, you read this? Guess what? I'm the master." And she like, "Fool, sit down. I'm the master." Wow, the king has said it. I wouldn't have known the king if you hadn't said that. Thank you. Every man be master in his own house and speak according to the language of his people. Every man be master. All the men is now cheering. <laughs> master, yay! All the women say, are you kidding me? If Vashti didn't do what he said, what, you make, what makes you think I'm going to do what he said? In other words, it doesn't work like that, does it? We know human nature. It doesn't work. The king is not going to put together some edict that makes everything straight. The change in the word of God is God works in the heart. He works in the heart. He's designed the roles. He fits them together, and he works in the heart. You can't be a part of anything. You can't be a part of this church. You can't be a part of a marriage or family if you buck the design that God has for you. And I, with all, whatever power I might think I have, I can't make you fit in. I can't do that. God has to work in your heart to move that heart to make it right. So it's a joke when you see what the king tries to do, and you know what's going to happen when that, when that gets aired across his country. Now, so the men are trying to force something by their own power that they're unable to force. That's because they had a focus on, they had the wrong thing in mind when they started out. Why did this all start? It's because King Ahasuerus said, hey, Esther, bring your fine tail out here. Let me see what you got, right? Not Esther, I'm sorry, Vashti. And Vashti said, I don't feel like it. I don't feel like it. Not today. Right? <laughs> Not tomorrow either. <laughs> well, actually, I think in Vasti's case, it was a day she felt like it. It just wasn't today. It wasn't when the king asked. She got there for a reason. She was beautiful. So this thing of male-female... The king admired beauty. The women admired that too. And they used that for their own power. It goes both ways. When beauty is prioritized, it's elevated and it's exploited. And both sides use it as a weapon. We need to be careful that we don't fall into that trap that we view it the way God wants us to view it as he views it and not elevate it or exploit it. What do I mean by elevate it? You know, we have a natural tendency to like somebody who's attractive. 
I'm not talking about it romantically. I mean, we go into a store and the clerk looks nice and we'll strike up a conversation and if she don't look nice, we ain't got nothing much to say. We're more friendly with people that are attractive to us, whether that's physical attraction or they just have something we like. See a guy riding in a motorcycle that I like, I'm going to strike up a nice conversation with him. He's going to become a friend. Guy driving an old raggedy truck, I ain't got nothing to say to him. We gravitate towards that. We need to be careful about that. Because I'm a state, I make mistakes when I judge people that way. We were going out witnessing yesterday, and we were right on 35th and Fond du Lac. You ever been by that? You know that's one of the most craziest intersections in the world. And I was coming across people who act just like they looked. Mm-hmm. You can imagine. So I judged them right. <laughs> Then I come up against somebody else who looked just like that and acted totally different. They are receptive to the gospel. I share with them, talk with them for a number of minutes and, and just, you know, yeah, I'm going to come to the church, you know. And so we, we judge on appearance. That's the problem with making beauty our priority is that we begin to act based on our senses, what we see, what we touch, what we smell, what we hear, what we taste, what appeals to those senses instead of working on our spiritual senses and responding to God's kingdom, responding to his work, viewing things from his point of view. Since God has impacted my life, since he's made me to be born again, I now have a sensitivity to what he's doing. I'm not, my mind is now open to his work. And I see that. And I'm not running away from people because they look intimidating to me. I'm running to them and bring the gospel. And I see some responses that amaze me sometimes. And so we prioritize beauty. We fail to see what God is doing and how he would have us to go. You know how beauty gets us into trouble in so many other ways. That we judge a person simply because they have attractive hairstyle that we like and we look very little at their very character if you're going to ask somebody to be a, a, a co-worker somebody to work with you or a partner in your business you better look more on their character than you do on their physical appearance their physical appearance probably affects us more than we think more than we're willing to share so we need to be beginning to look like God God, God is not impressed <laughs> With our beauty, he made us, so he gets the credit for that. He's not wild by it, and, and he doesn't make decisions based on it. One thing we say about God, he's not a respecter of persons. In other words, he's not going to treat you differently because you, you look good. No. He's not a respecter of persons, and we need to be like that. Another thing that, that we, we, we bring into this is that the fear of man. The fear of man is what pr pr promotes beauty over and above something else because we favor or fear different things and different people. We need to be careful about that. God doesn't want us to get caught in the fear of man. Respecting someone because of the way they dress, because of the way they look, because of what they ride in or where they live, uh, without acknowledging and looking at them. Get to know them. Don't have a fear of man. Don't have a respect of persons. God is not like that. So Esther kind of helps us look at some of those topics. Jesus, when he came into the world, was not a beautiful person that men would admire him. God did not want people focused on his physical beauty. God wanted to focus on his purpose and what he accomplished. And his purpose was to be the savior for mankind when no one else qualified for that. I'm glad we don't have pictures of Jesus today because it would throw all of us off. And what we do, we don't see God today. And that's a good thing for us because we're too visual and sensual and uh, dependent on our senses. God wants us to trust in him without being able to see him, to get to know him from what he has revealed to us in his word and to take him at his word and to worship him based on that. 
So this is a very important thing, this focus on beauty. And yet, as I started out, God believes in beauty. He made a beautiful world, and the world, the kingdom that we're going to live in is one of pure beauty. But he prepares our hearts for it. He changes our hearts so that we begin to respect, honor, and worship the creator, not the creation itself. Father, we thank you for your word today. May you speak these principles in our hearts, remind us of your truths, and point us most of all to that plan and the purpose you had in the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the deliverer for all who trust in him. May we come to trust in him. May we continue trusting in him. May we live as we trust in him and obedience to him. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.